This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Topo Athletic. Topo Athletic is a gimmick-free athletic footwear company delivering solutions for healthier, more natural movement patterns. Topo makes shoes for running, fitness, and recovery, all featuring the roomy toe box and iconic fit. Get 10% off your first pair by using promo code MANLINESS at topoathletic.com or go to topoathletic.com slash manliness. Do your body a favor and visit Topo Athletic to join the thousands of people who have done their research. That's topoathletic.com slash manliness or code manliness to get 10% off your first pair. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In the past few years, sports recovery has become a big business. Elite athletes and weekend warriors alike are spending lots of time and money on things like cryotherapy, float tanks, foam rolling, and supplements in order to feel better, push themselves harder, and gain an edge over the competition. But does any of this stuff actually do anything? Well, my guest today spent a year investigating the science of exercise recovery. Her name is Christy Ashwanden, and she's the author of the book, Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. We begin our show discussing what exactly exactly athletic recovery is and why the recovery business has been booming recently. Christy and I then dig into several different recovery modalities from drinking Gatorade to taking ice baths to foam rolling and the science or the lack thereof behind their effectiveness. We end our conversation discussing what actually works best for exercise recovery. Hint, you do it every night and it's free. Whether you should spend your money on things like cryo spas and whether recovery methods can still be beneficial even if they're largely based on the placebo effect. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is recovery. Christy joins me now via clearcast.io. Christy Ashwanden, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So you got a book out, Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. So this is an investigative report into all this stuff that we everyone's probably been seeing um, out there about sports recovery, like cryo spas, infrared saunas, foam rolling. So let's, before we get to all these things, let's talk about like what we're talking about when we're talking about recovery. Cause it's sort of a broad thing. Is there like a specific biological process that goes on in our body that can be considered recovery? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's kind of where I started when I when I began my whole process of reporting the book. You know, I thought, okay, what what do we even mean by recovery? And I guess at its most basic level, recovery is really a return to readiness. When you're in the weight room lifting a weight, you're not getting stronger. That muscle is not getting bigger and stronger in the moment when you're lifting the weight. Those adaptations happen afterwards. It's your body, your muscles repairing the micro damage that you did while while lifting that that heavy weight that makes the muscle stronger. And so recovery is really when the adaptations and and all of the things that we think of as getting better and improving and you know the reason we train in the first place. This stuff doesn't happen while you're exercising. It happens afterwards. And so that that in a nutshell is recovery. So, you, but you talk about in the book when you know you were uh, an athlete in high school. You even did a stint as an elite cross country skier. And I, I was an athlete. You know, played football um, in high school as well. Back in those days, and this was like 15, 20 years ago, people really didn't talk about recovery. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah. This is really, 
feel like it's kind of the new frontier in in sports research and sports products. You know, back in my day, the emphasis was really on high volume. So it was like the idea was you train as much as you can and you just, it was all about train, train, train. And I think there's a couple of things that have happened here. One is that there's sort of been this recognition that like just stupid training as much as you can doesn't work. You know, you can only benefit from the training that you're recovering from. And so, you know, the optimal way to train is not to do as much as you possibly can tolerate, but instead to do the least possible amount that you can do to get the adaptations and to get the benefits that you're looking for. That's the easiest on your body. It's the way to avoid overtraining. It's just sort of the smartest way to train. But then I think the second reason that we've seen this uptick in all of these recovery products is that this has just really become the new frontier in sports marketing. You know, we they kind of had created all these other products, so it was time to move on and, and create a new market for something. And so recovery is just something that is so open to products because, you know, really the thing that you have to do to recover is weight. You have to rest and wait. And people, athletes, I think in particular, are not very good at waiting. We're sort of antsy. We don't like sitting still. And so we're, we're really sort of prone to want to find things that are going to expedite this process. And I think a lot of two people too, not only professional athletes, but like weekend warrior types, like they're looking for anything to get an edge, to make them a little bit better. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's also, you know, this, this marketing really exploits this FOMO, the fear of missing out and this idea that like there may be some little benefit that you're missing. And like, if you just did everything right, you know, you can tweak yourself, you know, make these minor tweaks and really optimize everything. And, and I think that we just easily fall prey to that kind of marketing. Well, so you're talking about this, this is very market driven, right? There's opportunities to make money. But I mean, is there any research that's come out in the past couple of years that say, no, there's actually, there's things you can do to help recovery along or improve it or speed up? Is there any scientific research that says that? Yeah, so there's a lot of of research on recovery now. It is something that's being studied heavily by good researchers that are doing good work. So far, there's no magic bullet. Although I should I should back up. There is a magic bullet. It's sleep. <laughs> it's something that we don't do very well. You know, sleep and also rest. And by rest, I mean like what we we mean in the traditional sense of not exercising, putting your feet up, relaxing. These products and techniques and modalities and things. There are a lot of studies on many of them that show very small benefits. Benefits. So one of the fundamental issues with these studies, though, is that the recovery is just very hard to study, but it's also really difficult to do a placebo-controlled trial on a lot of these things. Like, I can't give one group an ice bath and then make the other group think they're getting an ice bath and they're not. Like, there just isn't a, a placebo that you can do that will, will really mimic icing, right? And so it's really hard to tease out the placebo effect from whatever physiological benefit might actually be coming from these things. And another limitation you've found with a lot of these studies is that they're very small. Like if they find a study that says, you know, X does this, there's a benefit to this. But if you actually look at the study, there's like just like 12 people they examined. You gave an example that you tried your own experiment. Yeah. I've heard the thing about if you drink beer after a run, that can help speed up recovery. Yeah. And so it seemed like a really simple question. You know, why wouldn't we be able to solve it or answer it with with a simple study? And it turned out that it was much more complicated than I had expected. But the issue of the small sample size is, is a really important one. And it's a problem that is pervasive throughout the sports science research. And I want to just say here, this isn't a matter of researchers trying to do shoddy work or, or thinking that that's okay or whatever, but it's just, it can be really hard to get a big sample size. You're, you're, 
asking human subjects to come into the lab. There's a lot of testing that needs to go on before any of these tests to make sure you're sort of putting people in the right intensity zones and things like that. So there's a lot of resources that go into recruiting someone for a study. And then if you're studying elite athletes, there just may not be that many available. And what's more, if you're trying to test something, you know, how do you convince an elite athlete to take time off of their planned schedule and their planned training regimen to do the thing that you want them to do? And in fact, it may be that they're going to get the placebo or they're going to be in the control arm. So, you know, it might not even be that they're getting the thing that may or may not be effective, right? So there are some inherent challenges, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's sort of almost like the laws of nature. You cannot extract a certain answer from a small sample. It's just really hard, particularly when you're looking at physiological variables that have some natural sort of innate variability in them. So it can be really hard to tease out these differences. And the other thing I think is important to point out is that in sport, very tiny differences can make a meaningful difference. So if you are a runner and there's something that can give you a 2% edge, that's huge. That that could be the difference between winning and losing, you know, being an also-ran. And so we're, we're interested in these very small effects, but those can be really hard to tease out. If you're looking for something that small and you're using a small sample size, it's just an almost impossible problem. Well, let's talk about some of these modalities that you looked into. A big one that I think a lot of people saw a long time ago and they probably experienced was Gatorade, like being hydrated, but then moving on to Gatorade. And I thought it was interesting, the development of Gatorade, it kind of just sort of happened by accident in a lot of ways. Tell us about the development of Gatorade. And is there any actually research that says if you drink Gatorade and get electrolytes, it's going to help you improve performance? Yeah. So, okay. So to answer the first question, how was Gatorade produced? It was, this was really interesting. It was a group of researchers in Florida. So basically, and this is sort of, it was interesting as I was researching the book, I found that it was one of these situations where we had a lot of legend and it was a little bit hard to tease out what really happened because everyone sort of had their own version of the event. But basically the football team was really having trouble in the heat. I mean, look, we all know that exercising in the heat is, is tricky and it's challenging. And so the coach uh, supposedly came to some doctors and said, my my players are wilting in the heat. What can we do? And so the solution was was this drink that had a little bit of sugar and some salts. And the legend has it that this turned the Gators around. They won the Orange Bowl. You know, this this really made the difference. And whether or not, you know, it was the Gatorade that was responsible for the win, it really sort of created the advent of the sports drink. And so what is a sports drink designed to do? And what are what are electrolytes said to do? And so the idea here is that as you're sweating, you're not just losing fluid, but you're losing salts. And so so that's the idea behind having electrolytes in, in the drink. And I'll just say here that it's important to note that electrolytes is just the scientific name for salts. It's a, a name for ions. And so it's, you know, this is just, there's nothing particularly special about electrolytes. I've talked to a lot of people that think, oh, but, you know, really need electrolytes. You can only get them in sports drinks. And it's like, no, these are things that are in normal foods. I mean, you can get electrolytes from a banana. You can get it, you know, from most of the normal food that we eat. So there's nothing inherently special about electrolytes. This is just sort of branding. But the idea is that, you know, in the heat, dehydration is a big factor in heat illness. And I think as I, I sort of outline this in the book, how as the research started looking at hydration, it almost seemed as though heat illness was conflated with, with hydration. And one thing that I found again and again while researching the book, I tried to find a documented case of an athlete dying of dehydration on the field or at an event because you know, we're all told that dehydration is so dangerous. Did not find a single 
confirmed instance. What I did find is that hydration or dehydration is thrown around a lot. So anytime someone has trouble in the heat, I said, oh, the person was dehydrated. But if you go and you know look at the records and what, what's really going on, usually that is not the factor responsible. And it's, it's become sort of a catch-all term. And we've sort of assumed that if you're exercising in the heat, dehydration is the thing that's felling people. But these messages that have come from the sports drink companies, and now we have a bottled water and there's all sorts of you know vested interests here in getting us to drink and consume more of these drinks is that you have to drink early and often and that you cannot trust thirst as a measure of whether it's time to drink. And what this has created is a situation where we now have people who are dying from drinking too much. I've never found a documented case of someone dying of dehydration in a marathon. There have been multiple people who have died during marathons or or as a result of marathons from drinking too much. So this is really, I mean, it's a dangerous problem. No, yeah. And you you also talk about how the body, yeah, thirst is probably the best way to uh, gauge whether you need water or not because the body naturally will like release more salts if it needs more salts or you'll eat more food that has salts in it. Like the body takes care of itself. We don't really have to do a lot to uh, help it along. Yeah, and I think one of the big marketing messages, and this isn't like, I'm not attributing this to like one single company, but it's this idea that I think we have sort of you know, we're at a moment where we have this idea in our culture that, you know, there's this optimal state of being that we can get our bodies to and that this requires science and it requires calculations and measurements. But it turns out that our body's physiology is really complex and it's really adaptable. Like we are really quite able to exercise in heat and in in variable conditions. And it's true, when you exercise in the heat, you do need to drink more water, you sweat more, that's absolutely true. But our bodies are also really good at conserving water in those situations. And when you're exercising in the heat, your body is sort of like holding on to water. There are some things in your kidneys that go on, they actually like reabsorb water from the kidneys. There are these very sophisticated feedback mechanisms to protect you. So you don't need to have everything absolutely perfect and sort of fixating on this this kind of perfection is kind of counterproductive because you're you're sort of focusing on the wrong things and so the best the evidence-based guidance now for hydration is to simply drink to thirst and this doesn't mean that you shouldn't think about drinking and i think that you know some of the messages about this drink early and often kind of came from a well-meaning place because it is possible during an athletic event that you're so focused on what you're doing that you don't think about your thirst signals or you're you're not paying attention and so you you become dehydrated. So I'm not saying at all that it's not possible to become dehydrated or we shouldn't worry about it, but it's really a matter of like, paying attention to how you're feeling. And and in the book, I sort of argue that the most important skill that any athlete can develop is this ability to read their own bodies and read the signals that they're getting, whether it's hunger, thirst, fatigue, and to really understand what that means and sort of on a personal level, what those things feel like to you. So I'm not saying, you know, don't think about, about drinking while you're exercising, but I'm thinking, you know, think about it. Ask yourself, am I thirsty? I mean, you've probably noticed that when when you've been exercising in the heat and haven't drank anything, and then you get that glass of water, it tastes so good. And, you know, you can sort of pay attention to things like that. If you're, if you're, taking water and it's not tasting so good and you don't have this sort of urge to to down it, then you're probably doing okay and, and you don't need to worry about drinking to some schedule. Well, let's talk about another recovery modality. A big one is cold therapy. Athletes, ice injuries. It's, you know, I remember, you know, when I was a kid, you got injured, you did the rice, mm-hmm. right? So you rest, ice, compression, elevation. People sit in ice baths, they take cold showers and people are doing cryotherapy. So what what does the research say 
about the benefits of cold therapy. Yeah, this is fascinating because, I mean, I just feel like ice baths and icing just go way back. I mean, this is sort of one recovery modality that was very popular back in my time, too. I mean, when I was bike racing, we used to go sit in ice baths right after a hard race. and We thought this was going to make us less sore and help us recover more. But it turns out the evidence now is saying, you know, so the idea behind icing, I should just back up for a moment. The idea here is that you're reducing inflammation and that's going to help. And, and that was sort of some of the thinking in terms of why it would help with soreness. But it turns out that inflammation is a really important process of of the healing process and recovery. And so two things here. One, icing just sort of temporarily reduces inflammation. So it does reduce inflammation, but as soon as you're done icing, you know, the the circulation gets back, the inflammatory agents come back to the site. And so that process proceeds. And so if you think about it in terms of like, you've done something to injure, injure yourself and you want that recovery process to go, you actually want you want it to go full-fledged from the get-go. You don't want to delay it and you don't want to stop it. And there's actually some really interesting research. Um, One study that I cite in the book where they actually put people on like a weight training program on different limbs. Either there were one of them, I think, was using arms, one was using legs, but they iced only one limb. And what they found is that the ice limb actually made fewer adaptations, fewer strength gains. I think there was something with less protein being taken up by the muscles and everything. So there's actually some evidence that it, it it's not just not helpful, but it might harm your recovery or at least impede it a little bit. Yeah, as a barbell lifter, when I read that research, I'm like, yeah, no more cold stuff after I lift. I'm just going to let myself be inflamed for a bit because that's part of the the process of recovery. Sure. And I'll just say here, though, that icing is very good at numbing things and it's a good sort of pain reliever. And it is something that, you know, some of the experts I talked to said it can still be good for people who are doing events where they're having to perform again in short order, where the idea, you know, where the goal is not to recover and make adaptations, but just recover to perform again right away. So you're not going to expect that, you know, in those few hours, you're going to get a lot stronger. You just want to sort of address the fatigue and the pain. So that would be the one situation where it might still be worth trying, but again, realizing that whatever adaptations you're going to get from that exercise might be blunted. But what about cryospause? Because, you know, you can do ice, you know, cold showers for free. Ice is cheap. Yeah. But there's people who are spending a lot of money on cryospause and they're claiming, oh man, it's, 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 uh, it's helping with my depression. It's reducing anxiety. I'm recovering faster. I mean, has there been any like actual research done on cryospause? Yeah, there has been some. I'll just say that the evidence for all of this stuff is pretty thin. And in fact, you know, it was so some of the claims being made were so egregious that the FDA actually had sent warning letters to at least one company telling them they had to stop some of these claims that were being made. But I'll just tell you, I tried cryotherapy, you know, the cryo chamber while reporting the book. And I, I think that there's something going on here. You know, so it gets you really cold. It's very short. But one thing that's interesting is it doesn't actually get your body is cold as like an ice bath. And if you think of it, and you know, to me, this is sort of basic physics, the gas is sort of surrounding you. So although it feels really cold, water is actually a better conductor of heat. And so your your muscle will actually get colder in a traditional ice bath. There was a study I found that actually was measuring this. So you're not actually getting as cold, although it feels really, I mean, it does feel really cold, but I think that it's sort of that cold rush. I have to tell you, I got out of that thing and I felt like I was ready to kick ass. It's just like this really nice adrenaline rush. And I can totally see how there might be sort of psychological and mind benefits, which is not to say that there's some special physiological thing going on, but just that it feels like, whoa, something 
you know, I just survived some, some sort of epic thing and now I feel ready to take on the world. Yeah, I've done them before too. And like, yeah, I, yeah, I sit in there for like, it's like three minutes and you get yeah. out and like the blood starts flushing back down to your extremities and that feels, feels good. Yeah. But I've never known like, is this, is this actually helping me, uh, you know, lift more weight? I don't know, but it, it felt nice. I will say that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the other extreme. So there's cold. What about heat? Is there any research about that heat has any benefit for recovery? Yeah. So I guess there's two things here. One is that heat is a vasodilator, so it increases your circulation. So that may or may not be good. I mean, it could increase, you know, the allow these inflammatory agents to come in and start doing their work and things like that. But it also makes you feel really good. And here, I just want to say that it's really important to note that a lot of these modalities seem to be exploiting the placebo effect in one way or another. And I think that that's actually okay. Like the placebo effect is really powerful. It's something that is enlisting your own body to do things. It can have physiological benefits. And so one thing that I that I kind of say is that anything that makes makes you feel better is good. It's it's worth doing. And that is like a legitimate, you know, way of saying, is this helping with recovery? If it makes you feel better, it makes you feel less fatigued. If it feel, makes you feel relaxed, that's good. That's, that's working, right? We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Let's face it, it is way too hard to find the perfect pair of workout shorts. 10,000 solves that problem. They deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways we train. One built for versatility, another for durability, and one to be super lightweight. There's no more BS marketing gimmicks, compromising on something that doesn't fit you right, or scrolling through hundreds of options. Just pick the short that's best for you and your lifestyle, personalize it for your individual needs, and get after it. My favorite short, 10,000, is the interval short. Great short for barbell training or CrossFit training. The brand has a very down-to-earth but powerful mission. It's all about self-improvement, becoming better than you were yesterday. And they got this great program. It's called the One In, One Out program. When you send in your old gym shorts, they'll give you 10% off your next order. Plus, every order gets free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. And right now, they got a great offer for our Art of Manliness audience. 20% off at 10,000.cc with promo code AON. Now get this, it's 10,000.cc. Right? Go to 10,000.cc, not 10,000.com. Enter in promo code AOM and get 20% off off the best workout shows you ever wear. Check out the interval short one more time, 10,000.cc, promo code AOM. Also by Indochino. Every man looks better and feels more confident when he puts on a suit, especially if it's Indochino. Indochino is the world's most exciting made-to-measure menswear company with suits and shirts that fit your exact measurements for unparalleled comfort. Just visit a stylist at Indochino's showroom to have your measurements taken, or you can measure yourself at home and shop online at Indochino.com, and you get to choose your fabric, colors, the design customizations like the lapel, lining, pockets, buttons, and monogram, and you hit submit and relax while your suit gets professionally tailored and mailed to you in a couple of weeks. I did this with a navy blue blue suit. Love my navy blue suit. On this one, I got to customize it how I wanted. I usually do pleats, but I have no pleats on this one. Usually do cuffs on the pants. Did no cuffs. Did the measurements myself. Super easy. Probably going to need someone to help you with some of the measurements. Send it in and you get a made-to-measure suit sent directly to your door that fits like a glove. Now, if you'd like to try this out, my listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $359 at Indochino.com when you enter code MANLINESS at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. Plus, shipping is free. Again, go to Indochino.com and enter promo code MANLINESS to get any premium suit for just $359 in free shipping. This is an incredible deal for a premium made-to-measure suit. Go check it out today. And now back to the show. No, yeah. I mean, like a lot of people, fatigue. Well, let's talk about, I mean, that's interesting. Like fatigue is an interesting concept because we typically think of it as physiological, but a lot of fatigue 
or sometimes not a lot, but fatigue is also, there's a psychological component. Like your body might physiologically be ready to do the work, but your brain isn't. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a a really important part of recovery. I have a whole chapter on the, the psychological and sort of mental aspect of recovery, which is something that I think a lot of athletes neglect sort of at their own peril. You know, So the body stresses stress, whether it's coming from your workout or from, you know, the stress of your job or things going on at home. And so it's really important that any like good recovery plan addresses psychological stress as well and that you're doing something to manage stress in your life because that stress taxes your body in the same way that exercise does. And so if you are doing all these things to try and recover from your workout and yet you're living this very stressful life, you're not going to have nearly the recovery you would otherwise if you had to address that stress as well. So another modality that's gotten really popular, and I actually, it was funny, this week I read an article with the Super Bowl. There was an article about the Patriots and float tanks, Uh uh, how Bill Belichick went to some special operations thing at the U.S. military and saw that they were doing, experimenting with float tanks. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, what is a float tank and what's supposed to be happening when you sit in one of these things? Yeah. Well, they used to call these things sensory deprivation chambers. So that tells you a little bit about what they're about. They've now been rebranded as float tanks. And I think floating sounds much more pleasant, don't you? But basically, you're enclosing yourself in a small, dark, quiet place. Um, Most of these have no lights or, or there's a light that you turn off once you're in. There's there's no sound. The water is just a few inches deep, actually, but it's very, very salty. So it makes your your body very buoyant and you sort of float here and it feels very effortless and your body feels sort of weightless. The water is actually body temperature. So it doesn't feel warm and it doesn't feel cold. And it's just a really interesting thing. So this is one of the things that I tried sort of in service of the book. And I thought, oh, this I actually sort of put it off even because I thought I was going to hate it so much. I really fell in love with it. In fact, it's one of the few things that I tried during the writing of this book that I've continued to do. And to me, it really feels like forced meditation. It's a way to sort of shut out all the distractions of the world, everything, you know, that's that's buying for your attention and to be just fully present in your body, um, relax the entire body. All of your muscles are just, just very relaxed. Your mind can kind of be set free. And, um, what I experienced in the float tank to me, it really felt like that moment, just as you're falling asleep, if you're familiar with that sensation, it's sort of like that for an hour. And I just, I found it extremely helpful for stress relief and just feeling, you know, I would come out of the float tank, just feeling great and so relaxed. And a lot of people said in this article that I've, about the Patriots, they said that the reason like they're doing float tanks or encouraging them to do float tanks is that it helps sleep. Did you notice that? Like it helped like you have a better night's sleep by sort of relaxing in a float tank? Absolutely. In fact, the first time I tried it, I was on a business trip to San Francisco. I, I tried it at the place there. And I usually sleep horribly the first night away from home. I mean, I never sleep as well when I'm not home, but but particularly the first night is usually terrible. And I, I actually did the float tank the first day that I was there. And that night I just slept so well. So it really felt like that sense of relaxation carried over throughout the day. Yeah, I've done the flow take a few times and every time I've done it, like I'll feel really good, but then like the last 15 minutes, I have to go pee all the time. Like Oh re- no. Like all like every time I've done it and I like I've in the next, I've even like gone to the bathroom, you know, make sure I got it all out, but like mm-hmm. it's still I wonder if it's like the warm water thing like you stick your hand 
like as a teenager, remember the, the that's prank? That's interesting. Would, yeah. I don't know I if that's that yeah, not, have, not happened to you. No, it, yeah. I haven't, but I could understand. I mean, there is that just, I can understand how that might happen because you're just so relaxed. Right. 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 Well, I mean, so is there any research about flow tanks like that says that this actually does something? Yeah, so there are a few studies that that find benefits. There's definitely been some benefits for sleep that have been found. Again, though, you know, these studies are all small. I, I wouldn't say that they're definitive, but there's some pretty interesting evidence that they can help and that they can help sort of calm both the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. In the book, I describe some research going on in the military lab looking at this stuff. So it looks very promising. So another thing that's come up that you see that didn't exist 10 years ago or 15 years ago was foam rolling. Yeah. People rolling themselves out. Um, This has become as normal as stretching. What are the supposed benefits of foam rolling and does it actually do anything? Yeah, people love, I mean, I have to say people who love foam rolling really love it. I can't tell you how many people have said, I want to read your book. Just tell me, assure me that it's not going to tell me not to foam roll because they like it so much. So the idea here is that the fascia, which is sort of like, I've heard it described to me as like almost like a saran wrap around the tissues. The idea is that it might get some adhesions or sort of spots that are sticky there. And so the idea is that you're smoothing these out. Whether or not that's true is sort of the subject of a lot of research right now. I would say that the research on fascia, which is really what foam rolling is trying to to target here, this this fascia tissue, um, is a really interesting, but I would say sort of like a frontier where there's a lot of research and intriguing ideas, but there's still a ton of uncertainty. And so they're really still working out what's going on here. Um, So whether or not these are actually, you know, foam rolling is actually working out adhesions isn't very certain, but there's some really intriguing evidence that foam rolling and this sort of massage may actually work via the neurological system. It's really fascinating. So there's some studies showing that if you foam roll one leg, you'll see benefits in the other too. And so it's sort of suggesting that there's some sort of neural component here that maybe what you're doing is sort of reducing the muscle's excitability or something neurological and how you're sensing, you know, how you're feeling there, which is a very real thing, but how it's working is still, you know, there's a lot of research now going on to work out what's going going on here, but I I don't think we have hard and firm answers yet. And so, but to people that say, I love foam rolling, should I keep doing it? I say, sure, if it's, if it's helping you and you like it, go ahead. And, and that's where it gets me to another point, which is that I think that another benefit that a lot of these modalities or things, whether it's foam rolling or icing or whatever, one thing that they do for people is they, they, they provide sort of a ritualized way to recover or to focus or to take some time out to say, okay, I am going to do something now for recovery. I'm going to take a time out. You're not doing anything else. You're just, you know, if you're rolling out your leg or whatever you're you're not running around you're not doing the next thing but you're you're sort of resting and so i think that you know that in and of itself has a tangible benefit yeah i think a lot of particularly high-end athletes they have a bias towards action right so absolutely sitting yeah. around doing nothing doesn't sound like i'm not doing anything but like well if i do this foam rolling or i sit in it that's something i'm doing but you're actually the something you're doing is actually nothing like you're you're just resting and chilling out yeah, I mean, taking a nap is a really ideal way to recover if you can do it. I have never been able to nap. I've never been a napper. But I know now after researching this book that it's a, a fabulous way. And in fact, it's naps have become really trendy among athletes. Um, Mikola Schifrin, uh, World Cup 
badass skier is a huge nap fan. The NBA word on the street is that, you know, you don't call NBA players mid-afternoon because that's when they're napping. And so this is something that is taking off. And there's very, very good evidence that napping is helpful and sleep in general. Um, if you don't, if you don't master sleep, all this other stuff, don't even bother with it because you're not going to get nearly the benefits you could from just getting good solid sleep. Well, yeah, that's when your body like repairs itself is during sleep time. Yeah. I mean, that is actually the purpose of sleep. I mean, well, the purpose of sleep, that's a whole, you know, it's it's really this, the science of sleep is a fascinating topic in and of itself, but it's very clear that this is an important time for our bodies to heal themselves and to recuperate. So, you know, you skimp on it at your own peril. Yeah. I mean, I think like growth hormone is released, testosterone is released yeah. uh, when you sleep, other, you know, hormones are released to help with recovery. So yeah, sleep's the, like the big one. Uh, big, big one. Mm -hmm. um, you also talk about in the book, yeah. uh, this idea of overtraining. So there's people who they've, they've worked so hard or trained so hard that like it, like their body doesn't seem to be able to recover. Like they're just constantly, they've hit a plateau and like, they're not going anywhere. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. And I think this is, I mean, it's almost by nature, athletes are very driven. And so overtraining is basically it. So the trend now is to call it under recovery rather than overtraining. So it's not that, you know, you can, the concept here is that you can only benefit from the training that you're recovering from. And so, you know, where that line stands is very individual. And there seems to be some sort of innate component to tolerance of training. But at some point you stop responding to the to the training. And that's, you know, when you do that, you can really go go over the line. And in fact, athletes who become overtrained like this, I mean, they just get cooked to the point where it can be career ending in many cases. Um, it can at least be season ending. Um, that that's pretty common. But basically it's it happens when people are training, training, training and not not recovering from it in between workouts. And so one of the challenges here is that there isn't, you know, any tangible, like I can't give you a rule like, okay, if you do this, you'll be fine. And if you do that, you'll be overtrained. It's, it's very individual. And some people are able to tolerate more training than others are. And this goes back to the idea of as an athlete, you have to learn to read your body and figure out what cues it's sending you when it's feeling a bit cooked and when it's feeling like, you know, what does it feel like um, when you're responding to, to training and what does it feel like when you're just getting the kind of fatigue that's saying, no, you're not going to come back from this. So, I mean, does, I mean, do some people are able to eventually recover or does it take like six months, a year, a couple years? Yeah, that's that's a reasonable time frame. I'd say six months is pretty typical. A year is is not at all unusual. It does end some careers. I have in the book a, an anecdote about a, a world class marathoner who sort of never seemed to be able to pull out of the the overtraining hole he dug dug himself. But then I also have a story about a triathlete who you know was similarly overtrained and just the key for him was to just sort of give it up and 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 let it go and and stop worrying about training and sort of give his body the time he needed to relax and recover and then just very gradually work back up. So one of the traps that the overtrained athlete falls into is thinking, well, okay, I'm overtrained now. I'm going to rest a little bit, but now I need to get back. Like I had, I had all this, I was so fit and I need to get back to it. And it's like, no, no, you, you don't go, there's no way to go from overtrained to like optimally trained like you have to you have to rest to where you're starting from zero again that's just the reality and you can try to deny it but there's no you know the, the route from overtrained to ideally trained has to start again at square one and i think that's the thing that most people just are are 
loath to admit to themselves. So it sounds like the bottom line with most of these recovery modalities is that physiologically, like it might do something maybe, but it seems like most of it is just, it feels good. And like that yeah. helps with recovery. So would that, would that be like the conclusion? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of the bottom lines here is that anything that helps you rest and recover and, and feel good is, is good for recovery. And that is, you know, what's happening. <laughs> Yeah. And and you talk about the power of placebo, like you even highlight research that shows even when people know that it's a placebo, like it still works. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we dismiss the placebo effect, you know, unnecessarily. Look, I am not advocating that people get scammed or that you spend a lot of money or effort or time on something that's not working. At the same time, um, there is, you know, the placebo effect is real. And if, if you can exploit it and really tap into it, do it. I mean, it will it will help. And there's a lot of evidence actually that so many of these modalities and things that people do really do get a lot of their power from the placebo effect. Or it's also called the expectation effect. And I actually like that term better because it gets a little bit more to the heart of what's going on here. And that is you're expecting this thing to work. And so you're sort of gearing up for it to work and expecting it. And placebo effect is particularly, seems to be particularly potent on things that are by nature, sort of qualitative. So things like like soreness or fatigue, where it's it's sort of a matter of how you are processing these feelings and how you're interpreting them. So if I ask you how sore you are, you know, there's not, you know, there's not some magic measure that we can take, you know, with a watch or a gauge or something. I mean, that's something where you are you are sort of integrating all of the sensory inputs that you're getting. And so part of that is is an expectation of how does this compare to how I expect to feel? And so if you're expecting to feel better, you know, it may just be that that's enough to feel better. And I think that's okay. Right. So let's recap here. So there's other modalities that are in the book that we haven't talked about, but like the recap of our conversation, uh, what we know works for recovery definitely is sleep for sure. Yes, uh, absolutely. That's nothing else even comes close. Yeah. What about, I mean, I guess nutrition too plays a role. If you're not getting enough food to give your body the nutrients it needs to recover, that then you're probably not going to recover as much. Yeah, that's right. So nutrition's important. But here again, I think that we sort of tend to have outsized expectations of what nutrition can do for us. So it's really important to eat a balanced diet. You need to replenish carbs. It's really important to get protein as an athlete, but the idea that like there's some magical food or some magical nutrient that's going to make all the difference is probably misplaced. And so it's important to pay attention to nutrition. One thing that I found while researching this is that one of the common problems that's starting to gain more attention in the sporting world is this thing called REDS, which is, what is it called? Relative energy Deficiency syndrome, I believe that's the acronym. It's R-E-D-S. Um, but basically, this is when an athlete is training really hard and not doing enough to replenish the energy. So they're they're sort of undernourishing themselves and undernourishing their their workouts. And this is particularly a problem in sports like running, where athletes are striving to stay, you know, lean and light and lean. And so the problem is that if you're not eating enough and you're not um, you know, taking in enough protein and enough nutrients that you can actually start um, breaking down muscles and your recovery process is just severely impaired. So for recovery, it is really important to get good nutrition and to make sure that you're fueling your workouts. 
All right, so well-balanced diet, nothing fancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, supplement, nothing fancy. Supplements aren't probably going to give you any special edge. Like there's no like special, if you take turmeric or whatever, I know that said that it reduces inflammation, but probably not going to do much for you unless you think it does. Right. 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 Yeah. I have a whole chapter in the book about supplements. And I guess the takeaway is just don't. There's no good reason. There's not compelling evidence that this stuff makes a big difference. But um, even more worryingly is that there are a lot of athletes now who are testing positive from supplements because there are issues oftentimes with sourcing and, and things being tainted. And this isn't even necessarily that there are companies, you know, trying. I mean, there are some really shady companies out of there out there, but there are also, you know, companies that may seem upstanding. And, you know, some of this just traces back to the sourcing. And, you know, if you're getting something that was produced somewhere where some banned substance was also produced, I mean, things can just get tainted and it just isn't worth it. Definitely. So get sleep, eat a well-balanced diet. And then those other things, like, I guess, pick whichever ones you like and that are in your budget would be. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cold shower, if it's cryo spa, if you want to sit in a sauna, feels good. Feels Mm -hmm. good to do it. Well, Christy, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Sure. So the book, I've got a website, goodtogobook.com. It's www.goodtogobook.com. My personal website, my my name's Christy, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E, Ashwanden, A-S-C-H-W-A-N-D-E-N.com. You can find my work at 538 by just going there, 538.com. And I also want to just make a quick plug. I have a new podcast coming out. We're launching in about a week or two, hopefully in a week. We'll see. It's called Emerging Form. And it's a podcast about the creative process. My co-host is a poet and we talk about all things having to do with creativity. But I think that there's some stuff that sort of applies to athletes too. Our first season has an episode where we discuss talent and whether it's necessary and can you overcome a lack of talent. And I think the discussion sort of carries over. In fact, we do talk about uh, sport in the episode as well. And that's at emergingform.com. We'll put that in our show notes, link to there. Well, Christy Ashwanden, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure too. Thanks for having me. My guest today was Christy Ashwanden. She's the author of the book, Good to Go. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about her work at her website, christyashwanden.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash recovery. We can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AWIN podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles and just about anything, personal finance, physical fitness, social skills, you name it, we've got it. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to not only listen to the AWIN podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Thank you.